Today, recognizing the truth. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Of course, for some of us, it may simply be cognizing the truth. Not sure how much we've thought about it. Uh, I know uh, it is a major issue in philosophy to talk about truth, the meaning of truth, the definition of truth, understanding what it actually is that we're claiming about it. And it's a little more complex than you might think on the face of it. Even, Even just the very preliminary thoughts about it reveal that. And we'll talk about some of that in a moment. Uh, But for most of us, what I want to do is get through the definition of truth, through understanding what truth is inherently about, to the point of actually seeing it when it shows up in our lives and being able to cling to it uh, when it's being cast about or challenged in our lives as well. And so the first step forward in the conversation is simply to define truth. And defining truth does not compromise it. This really weirds some people out if I say, well, we need to talk about the definition of truth. They're like, oh, I know what truth is. Truth is just what truth is. Well, I mean, that that sounds good, but unless you define it fairly clearly, it can easily, it is very easy to hijack the concept and it be owned by something other than this idea of a relationship with reality that's genuine, authentic, transparent, and so on. And so I just want to give a a nice, clean, simple, and, you know, pretty well-regarded definition of truth before we move forward. And it's a system. Truth requires this relationship between three different things. Now, I know that this relationship can become even more complex, and especially when you add the concept of knowledge to it. How many do we know? The study of epistemology and so on. As a philosopher, as a person who likes to do philosophy, I want to venture off into all those territories. But instead, we're going to keep it fairly brief and fairly direct and simple and say truth at its core is a simple relationship between three different ideas between three different things, facts on one side, thoughts on another side, and then statements on another side. So it's a triangle of relationships, facts, thoughts, and statements. Think of facts as just objects that exist outside of us. They don't, they don't claim anything. They don't have any value or non-value. They're just things that are out there, whatever they are, the moon hanging in the sky, right? Even if no one has said anything about it and no one's ever been there or whatever, it's just hanging out there in the sky. That's what I mean by a fact, that kind of thing. And then we have thoughts, and that's our way of thinking about those facts, whatever they are. And they might be material, like the moon. They might be non-material, like a concept, you know, that someone has. And so whatever it is. So facts, thoughts, and then statements. And statements are one of the principal elements about this conversation because 
at, at its core, when we say something is true or false, it's really a statement that we're saying is true or false. So when that fact, the moon, is just out there, and then I have a thought about the moon being there, and then I say to someone, hey, the moon is up in the sky, that statement is either true or false. But it's true or false based on the relationship between all three of those elements. That is, the moon actually is up there as one element. I actually think the moon is up there because I'm seeing it, for instance. And then what I say corresponds both with the fact that it's up there and my thought that it's up there. When all three correspond, then we say we have obtained truth or truth has obtained. That's the idea of truth. And so, you know, this, this is Aristotle's way of saying this is the simplest way uh, most people understand it. And this is called, by the way, the correspondence theory of truth. There is no name for it until there are alternative theories of truth. And we'll mention one of those in a moment, not for any significant reason, but just in passing. Now, I know we're still just talking about the definition of truth. Believe me, there's much more application to this. But until we have a basic understanding of what we mean by truth itself, then it's not going to do us any good to start uh, talking about the individual things that are true. And so I know some of you are probably saying, well, I don't believe any of this. I just think Jesus is the truth. Well, I think 2 plus 2 equals 4 is the truth also. Now, those are not equal. I'm not saying four is Lord or rose from the dead. It's not the same thing. But the, the statement that Jesus is truth is not the same thing as saying, oh, now we have defined what the concept of truth means, that he is the ultimate point of us knowing the truth, that he is the great truth to know above all others doesn't change the fact that truth also has a definition. It would be like saying, no, Jesus isn't love. He's truth. He is love and he is truth. Those are not competitive ideas. Okay, so back back to reality. That was just for the few who were who were listening and going, well, this guy doesn't even know John 14. I mean, what's going on with him? Okay, maybe, maybe I don't know it well enough, but I, I do know John 14. Okay, so here we go. This, the, the idea in Aristotle is this simple and direct. To say of what is that it is, is truth. Now, I could add a layer to that. To say of what is that it is and of what is not that it is not is truth. But you can hear the whole concept in there. To say of what is, that's the fact that's out there, that it is, so I'm communicating that it is, is truth. And you can see that what Aristotle sort of ignores in this part of the conversation, it's just in the definition, is the thought part. But that's because there's a sincerity assumed here. So we're not really talking about someone who might be lying. We'll come back to that part of the conversation in a moment. We're just saying that when your thoughts and statements correspond with the reality that's out there, then you've obtained truth. And falsity is the opposite of that. Falsehood or falsity is the idea, well, I mean, it's just this, to say of what is that it is not or of what is not that it is is falsity. That's falsehood. Okay, not complicated, right? That's correspondence theory. So when those three things correspond, then we should have obtained truth. But there are different kinds of falsity. So there's a kind where the fact that's out there and the thoughts about that fact diverge. So this case, it's just a falsehood or an error that takes place. It's not, it's not a lie. It's just a falsehood. So for instance, when students take a test, and they put, you know, A for the answer, but the answer was actually B. We don't, I don't come back to the students who've taken a test in my classes at Criswell College, where I'm teaching, by the way, logic this semester. 
I don't come back to my students and say, liar, liar, join, you know, Billy Crystal kind of stuff. It's not, that's not, that's not the point. They didn't lie. They were just wrong. Their thoughts actually diverged from the facts, but what they said corresponded with their thoughts. It was still just wrong. So there's one kind of falsehood or error. There's another kind of falsity, which is when the facts and the statement diverge. Now, in this case, that includes the student on the test, by the way, and this may include a lie, but it also might be an innocent error. If, in other words, if a person thinks it's raining outside, they really believe it's raining outside, and so they say, it's raining outside, you'll want to take your umbrella, and then you get outside and it's not raining, but they, they were sincere in their statement, you don't say to them, you are lying, you're a liar. They're not a liar, they were just mistaken. They thought the wrong thing. But then there's a third kind of falsity, uh, which is when the thoughts and the statements diverge. That's definitely a lie. (laughs) You know, when you're thinking one thing and you're saying the opposite, it turns into a lie. Now, there there are some weird things that go with this as well, because it's possible for your thought and your statement to diverge, and yet your statement be the one that's actually true. So, for instance, I mean, some people think that's what's going on with the witch at Endor, right? When she's pretending to summon up Samuel and then is as afraid as everybody else when Samuel actually shows up. So a false prophet who actually prophesies something that happens to be true would be a kind of person where you would go, well, that's kind of a weird lie. They lied by telling the truth. But it's still a lie because there's a divergence between the thoughts that the person had and the words that they were speaking. You would give it more in terms of their character. That person is a liar in that moment, even though what they're saying happens to be true by accident. Uh, By the way, this is not distinct uh, from what Paul describes in Philippians 1, uh, and this one has more to do with motive than content. But if the motive was envy and rivalry for these people who are preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus— if they're, even if their motive was envy and rivalry, then you could say, well, they're, they're being hypocrites. They're saying they're preaching about Jesus, but really they're preaching because they want Paul to stay in prison or because they want people to celebrate them. Uh, and in reality, that's not faithfulness to the gospel. So there, there is a divergence between the truth and what they're saying or, or what they're thinking and what they're saying. But in reality, the gospel is still the gospel. And so it still has the same effect on people. That's why Paul says, hey, I'm just glad the gospel's out there being preached. I wish people were sincere about it. I wish they would do it the right way, but if the word's getting out there, I'm glad for it to get out there. That's why Paul would say what he does there, because there's a difference in those three different kinds of falsity that we were talking about. So you've got the idea. Now, uh, all that said, I don't, I'm, this is not just a philosophical discussion in today's episode. The object here is for us to recognize the truth when it's in front of us. So, Uh, But, you know, in its theoretical sense, the idea of recognizing the truth would have to do with recognizing that correspondence between what somebody is saying and the fact that's actually out there. And because it's impossible for us to read the motives of other people, I mean, you know, you can look at body language and try to figure it out. And if you're a counselor or psychologist, maybe you can do a better job of it than the average Joe. But the reality is we don't have access to the inside workings of people's minds, but we do have access to the things that they say. So that's the part that we actually have to treat with a special regard today as we talk about it. So when we're, when we're trying to recognize the truth, we should recognize not only 
that it meets the definition of correspondence, but also this, that it coheres with everything else that meets the definition of correspondence. Let me explain what I meant. I know my producer's looking at me uh, cross-eyed here for a second, so I'm going to assume that I need to explain that statement, but it's pretty simple. It's this. Try to hang with me, Daisy, if you can. So no, I'm just kidding. The uh, no, no, So this is the point. The correspondence that I'm talking about is saying, does the statement actually fit with the facts that I see out in the real world, right? So regardless of how many times a person says something to you, if it doesn't correspond with what you're seeing out in the real world, eh, you know, you shouldn't go that way. Some, some, something's wrong there, right? So we recognize that it needs to meet the definition of correspondence, that it, that it comports with the reality that's out there in the world. But part of what that correspondence means is that the truth I'm hearing and the correspondence it has with that particular fact should also be able to hang together with everything else that corresponds with the facts of reality that are out there or with all the other facts themselves that are out there. This has to do with coherence. The reason it has to fit together with everything else that's out there, all the truths that we know that is, should fit together because if they don't, we realize something's amiss. There's something wrong about how our thoughts are reflecting the facts that are out there because of this. Because out there, out there in that world, the facts are all necessarily, inherently hanging together. That is, reality exists with itself. It's all out there together. And the fact that it's all out there together means that the things we say about one part of that reality have to be able to fit together with the things that are being said about all the other parts of reality. It's not, by the way, there is a definition of truth that's called the coherence theory of truth, which just means that things are regarded as true as long as they hold together with everything else that you say is true. This is not, I'm not embracing that definition. I'm just acknowledging the one side of that definition that does have real value. That direction of the implication that for something to be true, it has to be able to hang together with the other things that we say are true, that is accurate. There's a reason that coherence theory doesn't work as a theory in my mind for defining truth, but we don't have time to cover that today. Maybe another time we'll have that conversation. Then this. So now we've got this one idea for how we want to recognize the truth. That it, First, that it corresponds with the facts that we're actually seeing, and I'll give you examples of these in just a moment, that it corresponds with the facts that we're seeing, but then also that it coheres with all the other correspondence with facts that are out there and hang together with our statements that we say are true because they correspond with those facts. So in other words, it fits together with everything else. You've got the idea. Okay. So now what we need to figure out is how to recognize when something's gone wrong, when something has left the realm of truth and entered that world where we should say, I don't think so. So how do we recognize when something's gone wrong? So let me start with this. Falsity, falsehood, it's not just falsehood. It's not just individual false statements, but falsity itself, the, the, the recognition of this lack of truth, falsity itself is taking on a new role in our world. And it's not really new at all. It's just renewed. Uh, and I, I, was, I, I remember when I was growing up hearing about whatever Pravda was saying in Moscow, and knowing from a young age 
there was something wrong with its truth. You know, there was just something wrong with it. And later, when I was a, a young adult, when I was at Baylor studying as an undergrad student, I remember reading Pravda in our Russian language classes, and some of it you would go, wow, well, they see things differently than we do, don't they? And But some of it you would read and go, they, they surely no one believes this. Sure, surely no one believes this. It's just mythological. I mean, it's in, in its character. It's just absurd ideas. And again, I'll well, I, in fact, I'll give you a different example than Pravda, you know, their newspaper, which is called Truth, by the way. It was really weird thinking that it was, you know, that it was called truth, and it was obviously just propaganda from front to back. Didn't mean there were no truths in it, but there were a lot of things that were just obviously not that way. I do remember as a kid, now this happened before I was born, but I saw clips of it as I was growing up as a kid. I remember seeing Nixon and Brezhnev talking about, and this was when Nixon was vice president, right, under Eisenhower. I remember seeing Nixon and Brezhnev on, and, and again, these were on recordings, This because I was born after the event actually took place in 1959, uh, talking about, you know, rocket technology and TVs in the kitchen debate, if you remember the, the discussion. If you've ever seen this, you remember it. It's called the kitchen debate. Uh, when uh, <laughs> Richard Nixon and Leonid Brezhnev uh, were meeting together, uh, and, and they were, or was it Khrushchev? Now I'm not, now I'm not quite positive. I think it may have been Khrushchev. The guy in my head that I'm seeing, as I as I recall this, looks like Khrushchev. Um, so uh, maybe Daisy could be looking this up for me, maybe, uh, to see who did the kitchen debate in 1959. I bet it was Khrushchev. Anyway, um, it taught me the difference between information with accountability and manipulation through misinformation. And I wouldn't have had any idea of, of even how to say that when I was a little kid, but it was just so obvious on the face of it. It's Khrushchev. So there you go. I'm sorry I got that wrong. I don't know why I said Brezhnev. Anyway, well, probably because he was the premier or, who, or whatever you call him uh, by the time I was actually a kid that age when I was seeing these clips. But anyway, I re- so you remember uh, they're talking about the fair that that uh, Khrushchev had come to see, and, and he, you know, Khrushchev was just a blowhard, and so he just... He would, uh, and I, I don't mean to say that belittling the head of state from, from the Soviet Union back in that day in 1959, but I mean, really, it was just, you know, constantly mocking and jabbing at American technology and stuff like that. Well, what did you think of the fair you came to? Any polite person would say, oh, it was amazing, and I'm so impressed with what y'all did and so on. But his was, oh, I can't believe y'all have been a country for 185 years, and this is the best you can do. We've been a country for 40-something years, and we'll pass you in the next five years. And we'll say bye-bye on the way by. It's really, it's, it's, it's laughable, and people did laugh. And he knew he was sort of playing a gag, but he also knew he was holding to the party line. We're better than everyone because of who we are. And it doesn't matter what you say about technology. Our technology is better because we are communist, because we are the Soviet Union. I remember watching that and thinking how absurd it was. And I, and I saw Richard Nixon. I'm not a huge Richard Nixon fan. I'm just saying this was interesting in this kitchen debate, how he managed it, trying to be conciliatory, trying to find a way to say, you know, we should just open the lines of communication between our countries. It should be okay by saying, Look, there are some areas in technology where you uh, have the advantage. For instance, in the thrust of your rockets, which was conciliatory on his part. Your rockets may be more powerful than ours. And we all sort of had evidence that was the case anyway with Sputnik and, and so on. So he's just giving them what they should already know and what everybody else already knew. 
And so he said that. And then he said, and in other areas, and he looked at the TV camera and he said, uh, for instance, color television, which I thought was sort of an embarrassing thing. Hey, you guys are building rockets, but we can make really great color TVs. But still, he was just making the point to say, and maybe he thought it would be innocuous. And so it would slide by. And so he says, so our color televisions are better. If you, do you remember this in the kitchen debate? And then he says, he, you know, he says, so we can learn from each other in these areas. And, and immediately Khrushchev begins waving him off and saying, no, 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 there's no way. That's not. And in Russian, he is saying, no, it's not better. Our technology is better. Our, all of our technology is better, no matter what it is. And he's not going to listen to reason about it. There is no possibility in his mind that American color television could be better. And it doesn't, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that American color television was at the head of the game, right? I mean, the closest you would get to it was Western European color television technologies. It just, I mean, it was silly. And he wouldn't give on it at all. It was in that moment that I recognized that there is some fundamental difference that we can recognize, even in a person's conversation, between information that has some accountability, because I knew Richard Nixon lived in a country where people were going to mock him if he had said something that was false. I know what it is to live in a country where you have information that has accountability, where you have a free press. And then to live in a country where there is simply manipulation through information, which basically means misinformation most of the time. You know, this is, uh, there is no, there is no missing it. You can see it plainly, like the nose on your face, if you're looking for it. So one person was acknowledging what was not to his advantage, Nixon, and then including something else to his advantage. The other person wouldn't acknowledge even the most innocuous claims if they did not fit his sharply circumscribed, preordained model of reality or theory of reality or myth, as it turns out. And it is a myth. And it's deliberately that. It's a myth that is communicated so that your people will have a different sense of your origin and a different sense of loyalty to the cause that you have. And, and, and by the way, I could also tell that not everything we were told, because of course Richard Nixon was a stern anti-communist, right? So against the Red Scare kind of stuff. I could tell that not everything we were being told as children about communism as a system or about the USSR was true because I watched Vasily Alexiev lift weights. And I saw him, a, a real man, a person, a human being with emotions and, and a life that was lived. I saw him talk about his embarrassment about how much he weighed when he was born and about the town where he lived and and the way Russians just, you know, so the way Russians were described to us, they were barely human. So I could see that there was something artificial about what was being communicated, and I didn't believe that part. I just said, you know, I'm not going to assume those things about all the Russian people. And so, it's, it's, so I'm saying to you, there's a way for us to recognize when something's gone wrong in our observations of statements about whether they're true or false. Something's gone wrong in the correspondence of the things people are saying with the reality that is actually out there in the world. So in the obvious sense, what I'm saying is this, anomalies, things that don't fit with everything else we hold true, are our alerts that something's gone wrong. 
And, you know, most of the time we discredit the anomaly. We do this profoundly. Uh, and I'm, I don't know, Daisy does counseling now. She's my producer uh, sitting across the room from me over there. And I don't know if she's run into this in her counseling yet. But I can, I can promise you people are very effective at suppressing anomalies, just pretending that they didn't happen in order to move on with life. It's just, it's just part of how we are. So most of the time, we do discredit the anomaly, and for good reason, because most of the time, the anomaly is what it should be. It's something we saw wrong, you know, or, or something we understood incorrectly. Well, I must have seen it wrong, because that can't be what it is. That doesn't fit with anything else that I experience in life. You know, that's just kind of how we think about things. So normally, we discredit the anomaly. So, for instance, you trust someone and then you find out they lied to you. But they lied once, and you realize it was for a good reason. They wanted to throw you a surprise party. And you start trusting them again, right? So you put the anomaly out of your mind. It's like, ah, no, 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 I can still trust them. I, I know. And it may be slightly worse than that, but you still go, no, I, I'm, I'm going to trust them. People have to do this in marriage, right? I mean, you have perfect relationship, everything's lovey-dovey, and then something goes wrong, and you have this moment of mistrust. What? What, what just happened? Did, did, did he say that? Did she say that? Did, did they lie about that? Did something? And then you have to decide whether that event, even though it was hurtful, is something you're going to regard as just an anomaly or something that breaks the system. And every couple has to figure out how to manage the anomalies because things change over time one way or another. So there's that. But if there are enough anomalies or if a single anomaly is serious enough by itself, then we start to doubt the truths that we used to think connected us with reality. And I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying, oh, no, you've become a cynic or a negative. I'm saying we do have to evaluate the truth on a regular basis. And so when we face an anomaly that's serious enough or anomalies that are repeated frequently enough, so, for instance, in that same example I was giving a moment ago, you trust someone and then they lie to you, and then they lie again, and then they lie again then eventually you say, you know, I, I think my trust is misplaced. I, I may not, this may not be a trustworthy person. Happens with people who take on uh, addictions all the time. They suddenly become someone that they just can't tell the truth. And you have to change your opinion of whether they're a truth teller or not, someone you can believe or not. You know, other examples are more obvious than this. If you, if you have a stage, and this would be a single anomaly that's so serious. And I'll give a couple of trivial examples first outside of it. But, you know, a state, I mean, all three of these are actually trivial, uh, but, but only one is in our lives. So, uh, you know, the movie, The Truman Show, when the stage light falls from the sky, that anomaly, where, where, the, where on earth did the stage light come from? You know, that's, that anomaly, that moment, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm not recommending it or discouraging you watching it. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. But, it, but a lot of people have seen that movie, and you remember that scene. It breaks the whole nature of how you're thinking about reality a little bit. Wow, you, you know, that was that was weird. And then the other anomalies become introduced and and Truman realizes something's something's wrong. And of course that all leads to existentialism, a totally different discussion, which we've had on here at different different times. Uh, or in Danny Darko, if I remember the name of the movie correctly. Uh, and again, I'm not recommending these movies or or not recommending them. I don't care. I, I'm just mentioning them. These are so obvious as anomalies, though. Danny Darko returning, you know, from his meeting with that weird rabbit guy to discover that a jet engine has landed in his bedroom. 
and that even the FAA can't say where it came from. That's an anomaly. It sort of breaks your understanding of reality, which is a lot of what that movie is about to begin with, that we should see reality completely differently. Um, And, you know, in in your own life, it would be the trivial, I mean, the silly example, not trivial, the silly example of finding your mom kissing Santa Claus, which I'm not going to, I'm not going to venture forward on what that, this is the innocent example of that, by the way, but it changes your understanding of Santa Claus, right? When that happens. Oh, wait a minute. So Santa Claus related or something? So I'll stop there. Parents that are worried, I won't say anything else. So anomalies are intrusions on the consistency we think we've achieved in our understanding of the world. So in other words, um, they are an alarm going off, telling us constantly to wake up from our dogmatic slumber, to turn a phrase from Kant. Um, We are seeing the world a certain way. We're not really worried about it. We're not analyzing it. We're not really examining it. And these anomalies emerge, and they're going, beep, 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 wake up. Something's wrong in the way you're seeing the world. Or with what you're hearing right now. Something's got to give. This is not going to work together. So I'll give you an example, an extremely personal example. This is is a difficult example for me, but I think I can get through it today uh, talking about it without uh, a whole lot of emotion. Uh, An example from my life is uh, 40 years ago, there was a, a huge momentum reversal in Southern Baptist life, in the Southern Baptist Convention. I bought into Uh, the conservative resurgence side of that explanation. And I think for good reason. We lauded, those of us who were on that side of the issue 40 years ago, we lauded a return to biblical authority. We lamented a trajectory that we said was pointing our denomination toward what we saw as empty, generalized, you know, spirituality, sort of vanilla, blandish spirituality. But the reason we were concerned about that was because we thought it might be leading us away from the transformative experiences many of us had personally in our own encounters, and that's putting it gently, an encounter with Jesus and his claim of lordship on our lives. We uh, didn't want to see that go away. Others on the other side of the convention, on the other side of our denomination, I don't know, not everybody listening is Southern Baptist or cares about the politics. I just want you to hear an example of the anomaly that affected me recently more profoundly than before, but the anomaly started adding up a long time ago. So on the other half of that sudden change in momentum in the Southern Baptist convention, people bought into the, we should resist the fundamentalist takeover side of the explanation. And they also had good reason, as more recent events have testified, by the way. They lauded the priesthood of the believer and the centrality of personal conscience and academic freedom in seminaries and colleges, and they lamented the overt power politics of conservatives and, or as they would refer to them, fundamentalists, and, and as an example, leveraging parliamentary procedure to silence your opposition instead of having open conversations about stuff and so on. So that was the other side back then. So politically and relationally, 40 years ago, politically and relationally, you had to choose one side or the other. Uh, e- even though neither side's central issue sounds like it directly opposes the other side's central issue, indirectly, they did oppose each other. I mean, I acknowledge that. But it didn't matter. Whether you thought through all that or not, you had to pick a side. You were going to be one camp or the other 
because that's where all the resources were going and you needed support and you had mentors and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So politically and rationally, relationally, you had to pick a side. What's the anomaly? I knew a ton. And actually, if I thought about who they are and added up their weights, they probably did weigh a ton. And that's because there were a lot of them, not because each individual was heavy. I knew a ton of people, not that that would be a problem anyway, on the other side who I, I just knew them personally. I knew them in ministry. We went to camps together. We, we served in children's camp together. We went to uh, Falls Creek together, a, a camp in Oklahoma that a lot of people have gone to. We would have vacation Bible school at the same time each year. We would meet at associational Baptist meetings and so on. So what's the anomaly? Well, truly, on the other side, I knew one who didn't think Moses could have written the Pentateuch, for instance. Well, that was, uh, you know, a non-starter for my side of the movement, right? So, no, yeah, I mean, Jesus said Moses wrote the Pentateuch, so you got to go with that. And I debated that issue with that gentleman uh, who has passed away uh, since. Uh, just this last year, he passed away. Uh, I debated Kierkegaard and creationism. I debated Bart and denominationalism with these guys all the time. So I knew what their thoughts were, but I also knew how they lived and I knew how they did ministry. Every single one of them claimed and lived out that Jesus is Lord and still do. The one who has passed away is undoubtedly rejoicing in Jesus' presence today. They believed to a man in the resurrection, and they prayed for people. I did with them to come to know Jesus, and they led people exactly to that end. I knew these guys, and I knew it was true of them. In other words, on one hand, I knew these guys and that they loved Jesus. And then on the other hand, I was being told that their faith was a threat to ours. It's like, uh, something's off, and I just didn't weigh it out enough. And I, you know, I don't know if you've listened to the other episodes or not, but I've done episodes from the beginning that are about peacemaking, episodes that were focused on that. A lot of this episode is focused more on how to think and how to be precise in our thinking and so on. But a lot of my emphasis on peacemaking in all of these episodes at different times is based on the years that I spent contributing to a divisive demeanor in my denominational life regardless of what anybody else was doing. When I should have known and seen that I had brothers and sisters with whom I could disagree on a boatload of issues, but also with whom I could have great agreement and service together, following the one we both acknowledge as Lord. I mean, that, that, rec- that finally admitting to myself the anomalies that were present is what forced me to deal with this issue differently, not compromising any of my doctrinal commitments, but definitely revising my understanding of some political and relational stuff that was a part of my life. So, so let's, let's go a different direction with the explanation. Well, you know, so when people equivocate, so I use that word, it's a, it's a word we use in logic all the time. We use it just to describe lying sometimes as a sort of a prevarication, right? So equivocate, use a word in more than one way to cover up a deception of some kind. So when people do equivocate, it's a warning sign that something's not right. 
I mean, the nature of equivocation that you need to use a single word to obscure a nuance, to obscure a separation of ideas into two different things, is an indication that something's gone wrong with the relationship between what's being said and the facts that are already out there. And as a person who's been a communicator for almost all of my life and all of my adult life, I know our tendency to do this, our tendency to first start with something we think is true, but then work on creating an argument that requires us to compromise a little bit on the correspondence that we have with reality in some of the ways we're building up to the conclusion of the argument and not thinking about what those anomalies mean for the conclusion that we've drawn. So uh, let me give you an example. And, I, and this, this, will be a, 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 this is a little direct and a little uh, 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 intentional, but uh, you know I don't mean it to be offensive, and I'll pick the other side in a minute and make the same kind of illustration, create the same kind of illustration. This, this example, by the way, has to do with indefinite class inclusion. I'll, I'll explain a tiny bit of that in a moment. But, you know, when a famous politician said, <laughs> we'll leave it there. It's not going to be hard to figure out who this is. You know, Mexicans are rapists and murderers in a speech. Well, that person got pushback, obviously. And, and you know, that was the intent of saying it was to get people stirred up and to hear, you know, offensive terms. And so on the pushback, well, if you claim that all Mexicans are rapists and murderers, then you're a bigot. You know, something's wrong. You're a racist and so on. When that was said, pushing back against that politician, the response was, well, I didn't say all were. Some are. Some are rapists and murderers. But now that reading belies the original use, which was to say that we should keep Mexicans from coming into America. Since, you know, if we used some instead of all, implying all, then it could equally be said of Americans. And in some statistics, it would even be more so said of Americans, by the way, than of Mexicans. And we're not excluding Americans from America on the basis that Americans are rapists and murderers. So some Americans are rapists and murderers, not all. Some Mexicans are rapists and murderers, not all. But the original statement wasn't specific. It left it open. So you could say either one. In one case, the audience wants to hear all Mexicans are rapists and murderers. They're allowed to hear that. In the other case, when I want to make sure that everybody understands I'm not being a bigot or a racist, I'm just, I'm just saying some are. Well, some are. Some have been convicted. Obviously, it's true. Then I'm equivocating not on the definition of a single term, but on this thing called class inclusion, this indefinite class inclusion. Is it universal or specific? And in this case, uh, you're not sure. You get to use it either way, which should just put up a little flag on that statement and make you say, Hmm, something about that isn't quite right. My point is simply that we cannot overlook equivocations like these if we value the truth. Look, the other person, this, this is just built into the way we ought to be thinking. Uh, let, let, me, let me give an example of literal equivocation. We all recognized, some gleefully, some uncomfortably, the game being played in, and I'll be generic again, even though everyone will know who this is, in the Democratic president's line. Well, it depends on what the meaning of is, is. We, we all knew the game that was being played when that was said. That a, that a leader was willing to play with words in order to obscure 
his own culpability. We all knew it. We all knew it in the same way when we heard it, the game being played, if we were listening to the news, by a Republican president when he said one day, well, why would I think the Russians did it? And then the next day, after he'd been barraged with criticism for overlooking something so obvious that was the Russians' fault, the next day, saying this, well, why, what, I, what I meant was, why wouldn't I think the Russians did it? We knew the game being played, that a leader was willing to say yes means no from one day to the next instead of admitting a mistake. We knew that. And for some people, again, it was like, oh, look at that. That's courage. And for other people, it was like, what is wrong with this world? Look, these things don't mean that we have to invalidate every word ever spoken by any of these leaders. That's not what it means. But they do mean we keep our head out of the sand. We keep it above ground. We keep our ears unplugged, our eyes open. It means that we see the evidence that our opinion of the world comports with what is actually taking place in the world rather than pontificating about what we'd like to take place in the world and then keeping our senses closed to any evidence to the contrary. What's most important here is simply remembering how important the truth is. You know the passage. I mean, in in John 8, Jesus is saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, obviously, when Jesus says that, he has the specific truth in mind himself. He is the truth in which they should believe. There's no doubt that's what he's communicating. But the broader truth, the canvas on which that specific claim, the claim of his lordship, is painted, is that unless we conform our minds to truth, we become slaves of deception. A slave of deception is not something anyone should want to be, but it is absolutely not something a follower of Jesus can want to be and still be faithfully following Jesus. We choose to see the truth, whether we like it or not. And in so doing, we find what it is to be free, whether we end up elected or not, whether we end up employed or not, whether we end up jailed or not. Free is what we were made to be because truth is what we were made to know. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.